Trying to score from the plug today I sure could use a shot Zannies are helping but I need more Guess I'll smoke some pot I'm about to go insane Sometimes I need to go where everybody does cocaine And we always find a vein I want to fix and do some blow but The troubles will go away I want to be where everybody does cocaine You should you dope, I'll smoke some crack Junkies are all the same I want to be where everybody does cocaine. episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Where is Oro Recovery? It's in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and in Western Los Angeles. What is Oro Recovery? Oro Recovery is rehab. It's treatment created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. What makes Oro Recovery so special? So many things. Are you liking that I'm asking and answering questions in this ad? Totally off the top of the dome, as they say. Oro Recovery was invented as a treatment center that was going to use connection and compassion and not use control. What does that mean? To put some stock in the people that attend their treatment. Their team has decades and decades of experience in treating alcoholism and addiction, as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. Their team is well-seasoned. Very compassionate, very loving. I know this because I have friends that have been to Oro and they cannot stop raving about it. They rave about the treatment. They rave that the detox was as comfortable as advertised, which it's very hard to find an actual comfortable detox, but Oro manages to pull it off. And the amenities, you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, I totally suggest going to Oro. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the very good people at Sober Buddy. I'm going to do questions for everything now. What is Sober Buddy? It's an app, but so much more. It's a community. It's a team. It's a movement. It's people 
together trying to help each other and other people to get and stay sober. I know this because I am on the Sober Buddy team. They have Zooms every week. I think they have 11 Zooms. On Wednesday, I host a Zoom, either at 9 a.m. or 1 p.m., depending on the rigor or rigidity of my schedule. Sometimes it's 9, sometimes it's 1. You just have to follow and you'll find out when it is. Sober Buddy is also a social media platform all about recovery, all about how to do the next right thing, all about how to stay sober. Mostly, though, it's about a community. It's about people pulling for each other. Sober Buddy is $12 a month. It's practically free. It's like two fucking coffees or maybe like a Frappuccino and a half. They also have a free trial service. So if you want to try it, it'll cost you nothing. 30-day trial. Come in. Come to a few Sober Buddy Zooms. Check it out. Kick the tires around. They also have challenges, mindfulness challenges to help with your mindfulness, to keep you on the good foot, and to keep you moving away from that next drink or drug. If you're just curious, try it out. If you're sober and you want a little extra support, try it out. If you want to be a part of another community that focuses on sobriety and having fun and recovery, check it out. It's available at the App Store and the Google Play Store. It's also available at YourSoberBuddy.com. Check it out. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or loved one, Soberlink can help you out. Soberlink is a high-tech, portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify your identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends the results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. And now, here's the show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and other dumb shit. My name is Dave. I am at my dad's house in Manhattan. I am alone. I'm putting the finishing touches on this 401st episode of Dopey. But before we get into the show, I want to say this. There is an opportunity if you are a crazy Dopey fan. I've mentioned this before on the show. I've mentioned this on Patreon. We are developing a potential documentary about Dopey. I figured it would be really cool to have some Dopey Nation people in the documentary. If you want to be in the Dopey documentary, this is what I would love you to do. Record video of yourself around a minute, minute tops, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, 20 seconds, and succinctly and quickly say why you love Dopey and why you are a Dopey Nation member. 
but you don't have to use those words. Just something about why you love the show and, and what the show has meant to you or done for you or does for you. Doesn't need to be super schmaltzy. Doesn't need to be super funny. Just whatever. A little testimonial. A little video testimonial. Because uh, Dopey Nation people in the Dopey documentary would be just amazing. Also, the Dopey Foundation is up. If you need Narcan fentanyl test strips, email me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Also, leave a goddamn fucking review, please, on Apple, you know, whatever, iTunes podcasts. My dad lives for these reviews. He's done on his trip. He needs something to live for. And, you know, follow, follow us on YouTube. Go to Patreon. There's so much good stuff on Patreon. If you're a fan of the show and you want to support the show, join Patreon. We just did the Dopey Patreon Zoom. It was an amazing time. And Ray just admitted on the show that he had sex with a woman on Patreon. Crazy. Last year, very recently. And lots of good stuff on Patreon. I'm doing these weird just for today shits on Patreon. There's interviews, bonus material, clips that never get into the show. I'm about to re-release the first ever Ray Brown appearance on Dopey with Chris on Patreon. So go to www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. And I am still relishing that we are up to 401 episodes of Dopey. And if you look on iTunes, it's like uh, it shows if the episode is explicit or not. And uh, I just want to say that every episode of Dopey is totally explicit. 401 episodes now, all with the little E logo, which is amazing. Maybe we should try to do a clean episode of Dopey. Is there a a possibility of doing a non-explicit Dopey episode? And the answer is no, because I need to say fucking every third word And because the material is obviously incredibly explicit. But here's something that's not, that's kind of clean, but I'll probably curse when I tell the story. I, Nora was sick, my 13-year-old daughter, and I was at Target shopping. And she, I don't know, I think she saw that people are into doing puzzles. So she asked me to get her a puzzle. And I, you know, I went into the puzzle section and I saw a puzzle that had just cereal, really cereal boxes with logos, classic cereals of the 80s. Maybe it's really classic cereals of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and today, because it was like Count Chocula and Corn Checks and Frankenberry and, you know, all these great classic cereals, Golden Grams and cinnamon toast crunch and all this shit and i i bought it and nora and i started doing the puzzle and we we did a little bit of work and and she lost interest and i figured i would lose interest but something crazy happened in me and i became obsessed with the puzzle and i stood over the table with my hands on the table staring at the puzzle as though it was important in some way. And every time I got a match, it was a thousand-piece puzzle, and every time I got a, a fit, I got a little bit high, and I stood there. And every time I was doing something else, all I could think about was the puzzle. And uh, I got really into it, 
And then I discovered that there was a piece that was a duplicate piece. Like it was in a, it's actually in the cocoa. It wasn't cocoa Krispies. It was, it was, it was in some chocolatey cereal. <laughs> there was a double piece and I lost my fucking mind and I lost my faith. I lost my faith in a higher power that could restore me to sanity, but I kept at the puzzle anyway. And I finished the puzzle and the puzzle was missing four pieces. Actually, Fentanyl J showed up while I was doing the puzzle and he got into the action. And like, I fucking, I'm, I'm, I'm down to do puzzles. This puzzle was a beautiful puzzle. I will post a, a picture of it on social media. It's missing four pieces and had one double piece. Just doesn't seem right. Are you guys into puzzles? This is what clean, non-explicit dopey would sound like. Nobody wants that. We got this guest this week. His name is Tim Lodgen. He has a fucking monster of a dopey story. Ridiculous. Just inspiring and sad and hopeful. And basically, not. it's not your run-of-the-mill dope. And it's not your run-of-the-mill dopey. But before we get to it, I want to read a couple of emails, some notes I got. This one is from Katie B, Perennial Dope. And she writes... I'm just writing because I was listening to the episode where you and Fentanyl J were talking about if an ounce of heroin was something people had purchased. I did, Dave. I bought ounces of heroin back in the day. My ex-boyfriend and I used to sell weed and hash up and down the state of California. We were degenerate junkies. But thank God for weed because it paid for my habit. We would call Pablo, go meet him with $700, and then drive down to SoCal. An ounce between two people who use between one and two grams a day really doesn't go very far. I always found that the more I had, the more I used. Yes. Yeah, a ball of black tar heroin is a sight for sore eyes when you're getting sick. But like I said, it never lasted as long as we hoped. Your shock at the idea of an ounce of heroin just made me laugh and reminisce about the old days. I wish I could say I lived at that level for long periods of time, but I definitely did not. Maintaining that lifestyle was virtually impossible. N money never stayed in my hands for long. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Katie B. Uh, thank you, Katie. Yeah, I, nev I never had the money. I never, no one ever had an ounce. It never happened for me. I want to give a big thank you to Katie B., who's just like always pitching in at the Dopey Patreon Zoom for our ridiculous game. And I'm going to read one more, one more email, and then we're going to get to Tim. All right. Here's my dopey story. I'm from Boston, and my best friend and I wanted to get some perks. It was Sunday, and we tried all day to get something. We were driven. So B remembered this guy in Lowell, and she called, and he said no perks. But my mother got these new pills for pain. You can have them for 50 bucks so I can get a bag of dope. We toyed with the idea because that would mean one of us had to take a train ride to Lowell. Round trip was two hours. Someone had to stay at the house. B offered to get them. She gets back with a bottle of 90 oxys. We had no idea what they were because it was when doctors first started prescribing them and no one knew about them. So we take five each to see what happens. Nothing after an hour. So I said, give me 10. I could take 20 perks at a time. No buzz was coming, so we called it a night and went home. At 3 a.m. in the morning, I was so fucking high and puking my brains out, I couldn't walk. I crawled to the phone and called B, and she said, I'm so fucking high and puking too. We both said, what the fuck? We later learned that you had to chew the coating off, and we didn't do that. 
while we were ridiculously high for the next 48 hours. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Thank you for the emails. Everyone, you guys get socks. If I owe you socks for a story, please remind me. I have a hard time remembering who I owe socks to. Please remind me. Send me another email. Send me a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Voicemails are the best. Keep them under five minutes. Keep them funny and keep them as dopey as you can. And before we get to Tim, I just want to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by the Phoenix. The Phoenix is an incredible foundation designed for addicts and alcoholics in recovery to have fun and stay fit or get fit. The Phoenix's mission is for addicts and alcoholics to have fun. It's such a simple mission. It's free. You go to thephoenix.org and join the movement. Seriously, if you're not at thephoenix.org and you're looking to have some fun or get in shape, I don't know what you're doing. It seems that I'm going to go to Brooklyn to do some CrossFit with the Phoenix. It seems that we're going to do a music event in New Orleans. So stay tuned. Stand fast. Thephoenix.org slash find a class. Thephoenix.org slash movement. It's like this is something to get involved with. If you're sober, if you have two days, you can attend any class. Everything else is free. The only cost is two days. Join the movement. Support the Phoenix. They are an incredible organization. And before we get to Tim Lodge, and I want to say that uh, listen to Recovery in the Middle Ages. Do you know about Recovery in the Middle Ages? It is an amazing podcast hosted by our friend Nat X and his buddy Mike. They discussed topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. More importantly than any of this stuff, I was just on the show like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I went and I recorded with them. They made me feel very special. And we had a fun, fun conversation with a lot of like behind the scenes dopey information. Check them out at recoveryinthemiddleages.com or where or middleagesrecovery.com. I think they have both. And wherever you get your podcasts, go check them out. And now buckle up for an extra long, extra dopey conversation with Tim Lodgen. <laughs> Here we go. We are joined by MMA. Are you a competitor? Used to be. Former MMA competitor, fucking skateboarder, bodybuilder, motivational speaker, Tim Lodgen. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it, brother. Oh, no problem. We're in, we're in Aaron Carr's fancy apartment. So Tim has vent. You came all the way up from Baltimore? I did. About three hour drive. Wouldn't be bad. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you coming. I know that your story is pretty fucking insane, and I appreciate you coming to tell the, tell the tale. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Every, anytime I can get a chance to come out and, and share my story again and reach one more person, I'm willing to do that. You were also in the military. I was in the Marine Corps, yes. See, I think we mostly have pussies on this show, so I think you're going to be a breath of fresh air. Some final, finally, a real man is going to be on dope. Well, see, and, that, and that's, that's a stigma. A lot of guys think they're not supposed to talk about their addictions or their traumas or what they went through. I, I get... I get a chance to tell people and show people that it doesn't matter what you look like on the inside. We all go through the same shit. And the more we share, the more people we can help. For sure. For sure. And I, I mean, like, listen, we're not all pussies on dopey. I'm just, I'm just 
Just, yeah. I'm just teasing you. Tim. Yeah, no, yeah. And, and like, is there much difference between somebody who served in the military or MMA fighter and somebody who didn't? Yes. What's the difference? We're pussies? Uh, yes. Pretty much. No. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a different caliber of person. I mean, you have the people that when they hear gunshots, they run from it. I would definitely run from it. And then it. you have people that hear gunshots, and, and I run to it just to help the problem. How could I run toward a gunshot, though? What Going could I military. do? Oh, they wouldn't take me. No. They no wouldn't. I, I think, honestly, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's in your DNA. It's how you were raised. It's how you were born. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm all about helping people and, and crisis management and, and sticking my hand out and being kind. But, like, I just cannot imagine what good I could do when the bullets are flying. See, when something goes down, I get calm and I see what's going on instead of getting all frantic and hectic and, and, and oh, my God, what do we got to do? I literally access the situation and I, and I do what I have to do. There's no thought process. Well, I think the world needs people like both of us. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. So, listen, and also Tim grew up in Baltimore with, uh, with Brandon Novak. I did. He lived a couple streets over from me. Uh, we went to the same elementary school. I was in fifth grade. He was in third. And that dude has been famous ever since elementary school. Explain. He was the first skateboarder to ever be in a commercial, a Gatorade commercial with Michael Jordan. And I, I don't even think I heard that story. I was age 10, 11 in fifth grade, and he was seven, eight, and he was in the commercial, a Gatorade commercial with Michael Jordan. And I remember him coming to school, and it was like a little a celebrity, celebrity was walking in the door, and everybody was talking to him. And he's a little dude, like in third grade, like a real tiny guy. And that's how we got to meet. And we started skateboarding together, and uh, we, we went to, we had a place called Lansdowne Skate, Skateboard Shop. And they had a huge concrete bowl in the back and half pipes. And we would skateboard there. And he was friends with Bucky at the time. Bucky Lasik. Yeah, yeah. And Bucky lived 10 minutes from us down to the city. And he would come in his hatchback and pick us up. And we would go to Lansdowne Skate Park and go skating. We all started ended up skating on a team called Sports Elite. Okay. And so I got to skate with Bucky every time he was in town. All because of Brandon, though, because I, I didn't. I didn't know Bucky unless I knew Brandon. And then we had this other gentleman named Matt Martin, who was actually in the first Alien Workshop skate video with Rob Deerdick. Okay. And we all kind of just grew up together and skateboarded. So anytime Brandon was in town, he wasn't torn or doing his thing. I'd go to his house, we'd go skateboarding. And then that led into high school when we both stopped skateboarding and started getting into drugs and alcohol. When was the first time you realized that you were in love with drugs or alcohol? What was first? You know, I, the first time I, I tried... Smoking weed was in seventh grade. I spent the night at my friend Tommy's house, and he lifted up his mom's mattress, and we found a joint underneath. Did he know the joint was there? Yeah, yeah. His mom partied. And he's like, you want to hit it? And I'm like, nah, I don't want to hit it. And it talked me into it. We went outside, and I took two hits from it. And I remember walking home and thinking, my mom's going to know I'm high. I had an anxiety attack walking home. I was like, that's it. I'm never doing that again. So no, no more drugs from That me. was eighth grade? Seventh, seventh grade. And then ninth grade came around. I got into high school. And in where I lived, a whole bunch of different middle schools were all going to the same high school. So a friend of mine had a welcome to high school party. So we could all kind of mingle and know each other and stuff. And that's the first time I tried alcohol. And I got sick as shit. I was thrown up the next day. My mom came and picked me up. And, and she looked at me. She said, you drank alcohol last night, didn't you? And I said, yeah. 
She just knew you were wrong. Yeah, over. she's like, I'm not going to punish you. Your whole rest of the weekend's ruined. But we are having a cookout. And I have 50 ears of corn that needs to be shucked. So you're going to go in the basement and shuck all 50 ears of corn. Here's a bag to throw up, and here's a bag for the corn. And that was the last time I even thought about drinking. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't into it. Um, at that time, I was boxing, and I was Golden Glove and Junior Olympic boxer at the time. So drugs and alcohol were not my thing. What got you into, like, tough guy stuff? Again, I think I was in, I've been ingrained with that kind of a thing. I've always liked competing. I've always liked sports. I played football, baseball. I was into skateboarding. Was there fighting outside of Golden Gloves? Yes. So when was the first time you got in a fight? First time I got into a fight was with a guy named Scott in first grade. Okay. And it was over a girl. Okay. Wow. And I remember he was a little bit bigger than me. And he came up to me and pushed me. And the first thing I did, I just, I just hauled off and hit him. And he fell to the ground. And I remember looking at my fist and being like, oh, hell yeah. And then he got back up and I hit him two more times and he ran away. Right. I was like, okay, I can fight. Like right. I stuck up for myself. Right. And then ever, ever since then, I never took shit from anybody. I graduated high school at 145 pounds. Little dude. But I was in 32 fights throughout high school and I only lost one fight. 32 fights? 32 fights. How did you keep track of them? Because I was always about that stuff. I was like, you know. Can I tell you, I, I'm 48 years old. I've never been in a fight. Really? I've never been in a fight. My dad, and this is just like, I don't know what it means. And I, I, I'm fascinated by this because I kind of regret never having punched anybody in the face. Like that's a regret that I have okay. in a weird sort of way. I don't even know how to talk about it. My dad is 79 years old. He's never punched anybody in the really? face. Really? And I, I don't know if it's because we're Jews I don't know if it's because we're nerds. I don't know if it's because we're pussies. I don't know. I mean, listen, I'm not a pussy. My dad's not yeah. a pussy. It's just, I'm fascinated by the, I mean, I went to a very nerdy school. Nobody was really fighting. It was okay. not, I went to, I got into the school when I was four. I stayed into the school till I was 17. You know what I mean? There was no, so like I never learned oh, wow. how. So by the time you come out of the school and you're a teenager, you're not going to start fighting men. I don't no, think. No, I don't think so. So no. first grade, you see you have the hammer of Thor. That's a fucking exciting prospect. It is. Were you ever bullied? Was there ever any kind of fucking horrible physical shit against you in the home or outside or anywhere? Not in the home. Um, Thank God. Yeah, my, my father was a police officer. and he. Okay, well, that's a physicality to it. it and he was in the Army. Um, my grand, both my grandfathers were in the Army. So I kind of grew up around that. But him and my mom got a divorce when I was in first grade. So he was kind of out the door at that point. Right. So I got raised by my mother, primarily. And she did a hell of a job. I mean, she was working three jobs to take care of me and my older brother. And she ended up getting married to my stepfather around fifth grade. And believe it or not, he was a bodybuilder when him and my mom got together. So he was a big dude. He was cool? He was cool. He was more like a big brother or an uncle. He never was really like my stepdad. Taught me how to do carpentry. Taught me how to snow ski and water ski. Pretty some cool things. Taught me how to drive a stick shift. But he was never... It wasn't fatherly. No, no emotional contact. And your whatsoever. pops was gone. Yeah, and we really never had a relationship. When I got out of the Marine Corps at 20 years old, I lived on the same street as him, 30 houses down in the townhouse for four years, and I saw that man three times. What about now? We just started to rekindle our relationship last year. That's awesome. I wanted to have one year sober before I saw him. You know, in, in my early 20s, 
I was really bad in, in the drugs and alcohol when I got out of uh, the Marine Corps. And I went to his parents' house while they were in the backyard doing yard work. And my grandfather always had cash on him. Always had like, uh, like no shit, like $1,500, $2,000 cash in his wallet at all times. Wow. He was a retired drill instructor and he retired from the post office. So he was collecting two pensions and they moved from <clears throat> Hawaii. Why do you think he always had so much cash on him? I don't know. He That's the thing, al- I guess. He always had cash on him. When did, when did you find yourself identifying, not to other people, but in your head as an alcoholic or a drug addict? And I don't mean it like, I'm an alcoholic. I mean, when did drinking and drugs like dominate and what was the transition into that like? So senior year, right before I went into the Marine Corps, I, I, I signed up that year before, that summer before going to in the senior year. So I knew I was going to the Marine Corps. How long did you, did you know that you were going to be a military person? 11th grade. Cause uh, my grades weren't that good. And a lot of my friends were getting into heavy drugs. Right. And I was like, I don't want to go down that road. I can't get into college. All the guys in my family went in the military. You know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to join the military. So when senior year hit, I got this crazy notion. Oh, you know, I should have some fun. Let me get all this shit out of my system because next year it's going to hit the fan. So I started going to parties and I started drinking and I really liked drinking, but I realized that drinking dropped that wall. And then I was like, well, what else is at this party? Let me try some stuff because I can't do this next year. So that's where the pain pills came into play. Oxys or uh, uh, Oxys, Percocets, hydrocodones, whatever, whatever was, whatever they had. Yeah. LSD was huge. Were you taking a lot of LSD? The summer before senior year. I tripped 57 times. Wow. 31 fights, but 57 trips. I love, I, I, I kept record of it. Every time I, I tripped, the most I ever took at one time was 10 hits. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. What happened? Where, where were you? What was happening when you took 10 hits? I got 10 hits, five for me and five for my cousin. What did they look like? It was white blotter. Okay. So it wasn't really, you never it know. wasn't like orange sunshine, blue yeah, sunshine, yeah, 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 Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the really heavy yeah. stuff. But I was like, okay, I got some white blotter. There's some great white blotter. There is. And my cousin called last minute. I can't come over tonight, man. Something came up. I'm like, I got, dude, I got 10 hits of LSD here. I'm waiting for you. I'm like, I had the mind's eye on VHS. We're going to sit there and trip out and watch the mind's eye. <laughs> yeah. He didn't show up. I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm taking my five. So I took all five of them. And you know, 45 minutes, hour comes in. I'm watching the mind's eye. I'm really getting into watching the hammers walk across and, and all this weird shit. And another hour goes by. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm taking his five. And I ended up taking his five. And I, me- I remember for like an hour or two, I was standing in front of the big screen television. The mind's talking. eye is all that weird psychedelic yeah. fucking like computer generated All the stuff. computer generated yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the part in, in Pink Floyd, the wall where yeah, yeah, yeah. the hammers are going, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's two hours of, of just, just that. Of just that. <laughs> yeah. And it sucks you in. And I remember standing in front of the big screen television and I grabbed my nunchucks and I sat there for like an hour and a half just doing nunchucks. Is it nunchucks or nunchucks? Nunchucks. Okay. Yeah. And it came out of my hand. I hit the big screen television. You're fucking tripping on 10 hits practicing nunchucks. Yeah. That says a lot right there. Yeah, it was pretty cool. That's like a fucking movie. It was pretty cool. And I cracked the screen. You broke it. I broke it. Oh, my God. stepdad just bought it. It was like oh, three months God. old. And we're talking the, the big screen televisions with the big ass back on them that weighed like 600 pounds. Yeah. It took like five people to bring it in. Very house. expensive. Yeah. Did he so get mad? He got so pissed. What did he say? What were you doing? I was practicing nunchucks. Uh, I, did, I, I was like, tripping and practicing my nunchucks. Yeah. In front of the television? Yeah. You're a fucking idiot. Yeah, I, 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 was he scared of you at all? No, because 
he was kind of a tough guy. You know, he grew up wrestling on the wrestling team in high school. And like I said, at that time, he was a bodybuilder. So he was a big dude. And he grew up in a place called Dundalk in Maryland, which is not a really good good place. So you have to kind of scrap and take care of yourself. So, and uh, he never backed down from anybody that I remember. But he was generous to you. He was like, you're a fucking idiot. I- I'll-, I'll live with this. Yeah, yeah. My mom kind of wore the pants at that time. You know what I mean? But he was, he never yelled at me, never cussed at me. Um, always tried to pretty much just be a friend. You know what I mean? So in that aspect, he was kind to me. But at the end, when him and my mom got a divorce, it, it, he became a complete asshole. Right. Well, yeah. you know, that should happen. Yeah. And at that time, they became millionaires. Really? Yeah. Over, over my high school years, when I got back from the Marine Corps, they were both making like, he was making like 400000 a year. She was making like three hundred. What were they doing? Oh, bodybuilding. No. Doing um, what? He was he sold high end water sprinkler systems to like Whiting and Turner, and like all these big companies that were building all these buildings, like million two million dollar contracts. And what did she do? She was a vice president of a company called Paul Corporation. All right, so that's cool. Which makes all the filters for pretty much everything that we use. Okay, so you're you're this is junior year, fifty three trips. Who were you mostly tripping with? I had a group of buddies. So it's funny that my wife now. Her boyfriend was the acid and, and pot dealer all through high school. He was my best friend. You know, we skateboarded together and very nice guy, always had the good shit. We would go to his house. We'd start tripping with him. There was about a group of about 10 of us. That's how I started getting into classic rock, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. Classic and American suburban absolutely, upbringing. And tripping. And, Do you and, think they're doing it now? Do you think kids in this? I mean, because you're, how old are you? 47? 46. 46. I'm 48. I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix in Manhattan, right? Whatever. Yeah. Tripping. Do you think kids now who are 17 and 18 are fucking tripping blotter and listening to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin? No. They're not. No, they're Why not. not? I don't know, but they're missing out. I know. Because that was a great time in my life. I mean, even though I was on drugs and alcohol, it, I had an awesome time with my friends. Were there any sort of drug addict consequences back then or was it nowhere in sight? Not in high school. I mean, the, I smoked PCP a couple times. Okay. And that got me into some pretty bad altercations. Give us the, give us a story. My, I worked at a company called Metro, which is now Shoppers Food Market, I guess. Okay. I they bought it. And he would come in with the old film canisters. Remember the black ones? Oh, yeah, he, yeah. And yeah. had the lid on it. And he's like, I got some greeners. I'm like, what the hell are greeners? All the parsley flakes dipped in, in PCP. Parsley flakes dipped in PCP in a film canister. In a film canister. That's got to be the most toxic shit in the world. I remember it tasting literally like chemicals. Yeah, of course. And uh, we'd go into the parking lot, and he'd, he'd crush his Pepsi can and, and poke some holes in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we hit it, and I'd go back in. I worked at the produce section, and I remember like throwing up apples and <laughs> kind of like hallucinating. <laughs> yeah. and, and I was messing around with some girl at the grocery store. And we were in high school, but she was dating some dude in that was in college and he must have found out about it oh boy because he pulled up out front one day with like four guys in his car you bust out the nunchucks or no no man i I was kind of scared dude i I told you i graduated high school 150 pounds i mean i could fight i wouldn't back down from anybody but these four guys showed up they're in college and i'm like man and he was a a yo boy at that time you know what i mean and he's like hey man come here and i went to go lean into his car and he went to grab me i'm like whoa what's going on i know what you're doing waiting for you to get off work 
go whoop your ass, you know. And I went back into the into the store, and I'm telling my buddy, I'm like, man, these I can't fight all four of them, man. I was like, I'll fight him. I can't fight all four of them. Well, he ended up calling a couple more of my friends, and they were outside in the parking lot waiting. So when I got off of work, they started walking up to me, and my other buddies came out from their car, and we all fucking threw down. It was right, a rumble. Right in the parking lot. It's like the outside. It was pretty You can't do that shit now. I, I hope not. You can't. You probably could, but now people carry knives So what happened? It was, it was just a big brawl. It was a big fight. I ended up knocking the dude out. And his kind of buddies were picking him up, and they kind of just were like, we'll be back, we'll be back, kind of a thing. And you weren't on PCP or acid at the time? At that time, no. I, I hit PCP like an hour, hour and a half prior. Okay. So, and I don't know if you've ever done that. I've never done PCP. It makes you feel superhuman. So it was, it was, the, right, it was the right substance to be on. Yeah, that, that. It, ma- it makes you like literally like five times stronger, and you think you're like 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Like, so it was the no perfect problem. thing. Yeah, the way that the scenario worked out, I, I just I was unstoppable. And I do remember a time coming home one night, I, was, I smoked some PCP, and my stepfather walked into the door, and he was drunk. Oh, boy. And he fell down the steps coming in the house. And my mom's like, just let him get up. And he looked at my mom and called her a bitch. Oh, no. And I'm 18. I'm, I'm getting ready for the Marines. I've been running and doing pull-ups. You've been doing your golden glove yeah, shit. Yeah, gold golden glove shit. And uh, I said, Mom, if he calls you a bitch again, I'm, I'm going to fuck him up. And she's like, Tim, you can't. He's a, he's a grown man. And I was like... Thinking in my head, you have no idea what I'm on right now. Like, <laughs> I am literally insane at this moment. I will, I will kill this dude. And she ended up stopping it. I, I went into my bedroom. And he limped upstairs and passed out. But no, that, that stuff, I only did it about four or five times. But every time I did it, it was just like acid plus cocaine. It's a crazy drug. It's crazy. It's one of the, it's one of the only drugs that never, I mean, I, one time I was offered it, I never did it. But it sounds fascinating. I remember there was a dude, I, I, tell, I told this story one time on the show. There was a dude that we used to buy mushrooms off of. And, and they were always, it was a dude we bought fake mushrooms off of in uh, Sheep's Meadow in Central Park. And he was definitely smoking PCP because like we went back to get our money back. But he was outside the park. He had his feet on a mailbox. His body was on the ground doing vertical push-ups. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he was fucking crazy, you know, scary guy. But this is like, okay, so you're going to go away. You're a boxer. You do a bunch of drugs. Do those things go together? Like, in my mind, they don't. They, they don't. And, and if you really think about my past, none of it makes any sense. Were your friends athletes, boxers, stoners? All of them. Dirtbags, all those things. I was... I was never a part of one clique in school. But um, were there a lot of people like you? Or were you just have attributes of these other people? I just had attributes of everybody else. Right on. I, I never really liked, you know, the preppies or the jocks or, or the stoners or the skaters. I liked everybody. I got along with everybody. I was one of the most popular kids in high school. I was voted best looking my senior year. Like, I had girlfriends. I, trying to fit in wasn't a thing for me. I was just doing my own thing. I wanted to do try drugs and I wanted to drink and have fun. So when you're ready to go away to the military, you've kind of, you know, you've tripped 53 times. You've smoked PCP. How many times you fucking brawled? You've, you've done, you've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. And what do you, where do you sign up? Where do you go? I went down to the recruiter's office, you know, right down. It was literally two, two blocks from my house. It was actually between my house and Brandon Novak's house, to tell you the truth. And I, I go in there and, and I walk right past the army, right past the Navy, Air Force, 
I was joining the military, I wanted to be the best of the best. I wanted to join the hardest branch. And even to this day, my dad, why didn't you join the army? I was in the army. Your brother was in the army. All your grandfather's in the army. I'm like, I, w I wanted to do the toughest. I wanted to do, I wanted to push myself to the brink and see if I could make it. And that's the Marines. And that's the Marine Corps. Okay. Unless you go into the Navy and you become a Navy SEAL. Okay. Were you considering that? I was, but then I'd have to go into the Navy first and wear those stupid ass bell bottom pants and wear that little hat. And I, I wasn't, that right. wasn't. Right. I wasn't doing that. I understand. <laughs> so, so, so you get into the Marines and where do you go? Went to um, Paris Island for my boot camp, which is South Carolina. Graduated that. I was able to come home for a month. I got recruiter's assistance. Did you fit in right away in that? Yeah, I actually, not only did I fit in, I graduated uh, fourth of my class. I graduated the company guide. So in each platoon, you have uh, four rows. In each row, you have 20 or 30 guys in each row. At the beginning of each row is a squad leader. That squad leader is in charge of the 30 or 40 guys in the row. The guide is in charge of the squad leader. So it's like having uh, four managers and then the supervisor. Okay. The supervisor tells the four managers what to do. The four manager goes and tells the employees what they have to do for the day. I was always the squad leader since day one, and then I became the guide. And then actually, when we at the end of our boot camp, the last two weeks, your platoon goes up against all the other platoons on these different sports. Jousting. Wow. Boxing. When you're jousting, what is that? So you're, you're in a pit and you have a two padded pole. You're not on horseback. No, not okay. on horseback. And you're not on the, on the little round things that you fall into pads. You're literally in a dirt pit. And with the American gladiator yes, shit. Yes, American gladiator shit. Okay. And the one side has a picture of your bayonet. The other side has a picture of your stock. So wow. you're supposed to be acting like it's your M16. Wow. And they, they blow the whistle and you go at it. And they try to knock the other person down. The first person that gets knocked down loses a point. Because technically, if you're in the military and you're in that hand-to-hand -hand combat situation and you knock somebody down with an M16, that, that's their life. Because the next blow that's coming towards them is the bayonet in the face. Right. You know? So they have the bayonet on them still, the M16s. We didn't train with them, but yes. So they have a blade on the end of the pistol. There's on an the attachment. End. I never even saw that. When you go into hand to hand combat, even now, still, there's an attachment for the bayonet that you put it on the front of your, wow. your bayonet. Wow. Yeah. See how sheltered I am? Yeah. Hand to hand combat is real. Right. It happens. Well, I'm learning a lot, and you must have learned a lot. I did. We, we took judo, we took jujitsu. Did uh, you feel like you were changing in that situation? It sounds like it was a good situation for you. I liked it. Did you see people fail? Absolutely. We started 180 people in my platoon, and we graduated with 82. And, and the people who failed, it was just too much for them? It was just too much. And could you just leave? In boot camp, they don't tell you this. They tell you once you sign up, you can't leave. But in boot camp, if you don't finish boot camp, you can just leave. Because you're not, you're not, you're not marine material. You're not, you're not, you're not you going to make it. You can't do it. Half the guys got, got off because they were tearing their ACLs or... or the collarbones were getting messed up or their back. Or, they just weren't built for it. They weren't built for it. And then the other half mentally couldn't, couldn't make it. Right. I remember one guy at the, at the front of our squad bay was the um, quarter deck. And that's where if you got in trouble, you had to go up there and do calisthenics. And he was up there on the floor crying for his mommy. I want to go home. I want my mommy. I don't, I want. They, they got out and they got him a section eight, which is a, uh, a mental discharge. Right, right. So right. I just couldn't handle it. Not a lot of people can handle that stress. I don't. I, I, I could not handle it. But I, I, but I wish I could. You know what I mean? I hear this story and it's like, ah, oh, what? You know, a dream deferred or like another path or whatever. Because it's, it's like obviously, 
whatever you do in your life, you're going to gain something from the experience, yes. good, bad, or ugly. And it seems like an experience like that is at least like, like I'm watching this show, The the Last of Us, which yeah. is, a, yeah. See, I think if you're in The Last of Us and you had that experience, you'd be well suited for the mushroom zombie apocalypse. Absolutely. Whereas I'm not suited for that shit. I'm in big trouble. Yeah. I'm never throwing a punch. You're fucking bayoneting people. Who's going to make it in the zombie mushroom apocalypse? You have to have survival instincts. All right. So when does it get bad? So I get, I graduate boot camp. We go into our MOS school, which is the, the training where you learn your, your job. And I was infantry. And we would get off at four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And a bunch of us would leave the base. You were in South Carolina? I was uh, at this time, from, I went from South Carolina. Now I'm in North Carolina doing my training. Okay. Jacksonville, North Carolina, Camp Geiger. And we would get off at four o'clock, and a bunch of us would leave the base. And literally across the street from the base was hotel, strip club, tattoo parlor, church. That's literally how it went down the strip. Right. And it just kept repeating itself. So we would go to the strip clubs, go to the bars, go to the tattoo parlors, and the bars and the strip clubs would serve us. Their motto was, if you're old enough to take a bullet for the country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. That seems like a good motto for the, for the, the clientele. Yeah. So we would go there and have no problem serving us. Their only stipulation was you couldn't stand around holding alcohol in your hand in case of- You had to be discreet. You had to order it, take it back to a table, and sit it on the table when you weren't actually sipping it. Just in case an authority person walked in, the bar wouldn't get in trouble. But you could go there and get as much alcohol as you wanted. You're still doing drugs or no drugs? No there? drugs. As soon as I got in the Marine Corps, the drugs had to stop. So no drugs whatsoever. But Did you miss them? Or wasn't it not a thing? At that time, it really wasn't a thing for me. You know, I was like, okay, that's done. I'm in the military now. It was like, at that, at you my, did it. I did it. I had fun. I had a lot of cool memories. That's it. But every day at four o'clock, man, I, I, I remember I would start to get antsy around two o'clock. Man, we got two more hours. Now we can go to get some beer. I remember that starting to develop. And I remember thinking, I might actually start having a problem here because I can't wait until four o'clock to go to the bar. And once I went to the bar, nothing else mattered. So when did you, did you start drinking before four? No, because okay. there, no, there was no alcohol in base. So it wasn't like you weren't like stealing vanilla extract and shit like that. No, no, none of that was around. But Absolutely four o'clock was tattooed on your brain. Four o'clock was we're changing, we're leaving, getting in the cab, going and, and going off base and going to the bars. That's what we did Monday through Friday, and from Friday to Sunday, we would a bunch of us would get into a, a cab and take it to South Carolina Myrtle Beach, which was about an hour and fifteen minutes away. We get a hotel for the weekend and go crazy, and go fucking nuts. What were the weekends like? They were, they were nice, man. We'd go down and pick up some girls at the strip clubs down there. You know, we're, we're 18, 19, 20-year-old. We're all in shape, good men. And we'd pick up some girls, have some threesomes. And, and Wow. Oh, yeah, man. I, mean, I, had a, I had a nice 18, 19, 20-year-old experience. It was good. No drugs, still no drugs, just all liquor. Liquor and alcohol. The girls would bring some cocaine every once in a while. I was actually scared of cocaine. Why? I always had it in my mind. If I did it, my heart would explode. That's possible. So I was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not fear. even touching it. Right. You know, why, why take that chance? So I, I've never, I've only actually done cocaine twice in my entire life. Yeah, I never loved coke. I don't think you missed out that much. No, no. And the first time I did it, I ended up uh, wrecking my truck down to a ditch and my head went through the windshield. Yeah. So, well, it's so I was like, you know what? No, this ain't for me. 
So when does do you get discharged from the military? Do you have to go? Do you have to go overseas? What happens? So a year and a half into my enlistment, we got to go to Somalia for six months for training. It wasn't during wartime. This was on '95, so there was no war going on. But at that time, they had just introduced guerrilla warfare training, which is clearing houses, clearing rooms, like a SWAT team does, because they knew that there was going to be wars coming up to where we would have to go into cities and clear rooms. I'm not sure how they knew that in the 90s, but the government's the government. So we were down there training. And I got to see... What do you mean clear rooms? So like uh, if the SWAT team comes to your house, you got somebody here that's barricaded. You have four guys. You have the lead man that comes in and either throws a flash, flash bomb or a grenade. The guy behind him is covering his ass. The guy in the middle is looking up, makes sure nobody's above you. And the guy behind you is turned around, has, has his back towards you, and he's making sure nobody's coming up behind you. So you each have a position. And you go into the room, you clear left to right, right, make sure the room's clear, and then go to the next room. So we were learning how to do that. Uh, we were doing live fire with real bullets and really learning how to do that. But being, the, being there... Did you have armor? Yeah, you, had, you wore a flak jacket. Flak jacket. You got, to, you got to see the ramifications of war, of what it did to a country and its people. And um, I didn't think it affected me being there because it was like, it's my job. This is what we're doing. We're training. training. But when I came home, I had a hard time concentrating back on doing my job. What were you thinking about? I was thinking maybe this wasn't for me. I, I really started contemplating, you know, I'm glad I didn't have to actually shoot somebody you know um how are those thoughts kind of coming to you why did i really join the military i think that's really interesting because when we started this conversation you were the guy who run toward the fire yeah and then you're having this moment the uh, you know of self-evaluation self-doubt yeah. like what am i doing talk right. about that a little bit more and, please and I, i'm really interested I, I would think about you know why does the government send us into these countries to kill other people we're all people what did they actually do for us to go in there and murder them? Because that's essentially what you're doing. You just have a, a reason behind it, but you're going in and you're murdering each other. For what? Like, what is the actual purpose for this? And I really started to believe that maybe I am not built for murder. I'm not, not built for that. Yeah, I like all the physicality. I like all the training that I did. And if I had to, and if I was in a situation, you, you, you pull the trigger. There's no thought process. But what was that going to do to me if I actually really did have to do that? Yeah. So when you're having these kinds of thoughts, like, where are you? I'm in Camp Geiger. I'm training. And uh, I remember sitting in my squad bay. I stopped going out for a couple nights. I just wanted to be alone. Does it look a little bit like depression? Yeah. And, and fear? And f Yeah. I, I really started to feel depression was setting in. I started to feel kind of out of place. I didn't want to be with... It's scary though. Like even just hearing you talk about it, I'm 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 putting myself in your shoes. Yeah, and it's, um, like, it's a lot of I pressure. Had, I had my first anxiety and panic attack in the military. Which when was that? Around that same time when we came back. You know, just racing thoughts that I couldn't slow down. They just kept flooding my brain, and, and I didn't know how to process them. Did you go to anybody around that? I eventually did. After a couple months of being home, I went and saw the chaplain, which is the priest or the you know, but they call chaplain. And I went and sat with them. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can, if I can continue my enlistment. What, what's going on? I don't think I should be here. You know, I'm, I'm not feeling myself. 
I don't want to be around these guys. I don't. I literally at one point I was like, I don't want to pick up an M16 anymore. That that's a tool of death. Like I don't want to be around this right now. And we went back and forth for months. I kept trying to, well, we'll put you back in some different training. Maybe we'll train your MOS because I was 0311 infantry. I signed up to be on the front lines, pulling the M16 out and shooting. That's right. what I wanted to do. Maybe we'll put you in motor T or, or put you behind a desk. What's MOS? Um, military. Okay, I don't remember. But it's, it's your job. Okay. It's, what it's, you not, it's, it's not frontline infantry. No, it's, 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 it's what you sign up for. So my 0311 infantry status in combat, my life expectancy was three and a half seconds. Right. So from the time you get out of the helicopter or the Humvee, you are expected to, to live for 3.5 seconds. How did you get that information? The military has it all based on your job description. Well, how can that be an incentive to doing the job? Exactly. Chances are you're going to make it like almost four seconds if you're lucky. Like, like That's the whole breakdown and build up process. And they tell you that? They tell you that. Okay, you want to be a machine gunner. You have a seven second chance of living. Oh my God. Yeah. That's they, a I, lot. They literally tell your, your life expectancy in the act of war. So, so that's what you're responding to. Yes. It's a traumatic situation. Yeah. And, and that's where boot camp comes in because they break you down from, you know, Tim from Baltimore, who grew up with his mom, went to a pretty decent school. It was popular. Having threesomes on the weekends. Yeah. To a killer. A killer who's likely going to be killed in less than four right. seconds. But if you are killed, that's honor. Right. And, That's and, a lot. And you did something. It's with terrifying. Your life. It is terrifying. And 18, 19, 20 year old kids, man, you, you can really uh, impact them at that point. Their brains change. Everything's changing. You're right. a child. You're developing. You're just out of high school. Your brain is still developing. Absolutely. So, and this had a huge impact on your brain. It did. And, and it did. did you, did you see anybody like, cause I guess the idea is to inspire somebody to want to be a killer inspire somebody to to feel the honor of being killed in four seconds i'm sure you saw a lot of people that were gung-ho oh yeah i mean i was gung-ho but but in the back of your head you had this doubt yeah like maybe this isn't what i'm put on the planet for right which right. is which is a pretty healthy fear in my opinion it is you know when I, when i first got there i had to be the best i wanted to finish the best i wanted to run the fastest and you were one of the best you and were you were a squad leader and you were doing all that shit. i, I achieved that and then it, I guess reality kind of set in that I, I'm literally trained to kill. That's my job. I don't have any other job. I can't come out of the, out of the military and become a professional killer. Well, you could, but it's, I could, it's not but an easy, it's not an easy I mean, path. So basically when I got in the military, the only options for me that I knew I would get a job would become a police officer. I didn't pick a job that was setting me up for life. And you didn't want to be a police officer. No. Nah. I took it, all the tests and I passed them all, but I didn't go. So do you think something there fucked with you a little bit because you didn't have, then your path was changed? It was. Well, when, when, I, when I finally got out, so me and the chaplain were talking and I told him, I said, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to come out. And he said, okay. And, he, and it took six months of paperwork and, and talking to the chaplain, talking to the, the Navy doctors. And finally they, they decided, okay, you're, you're not fit to continue. I had broken my ankle twice. And did that fuck you up? It did. So I broke my ankle twice. I couldn't train for months. I was in a cast. I was set to another platoon, which is called admin company, where you get better until you're better to go train again and go back to your job. I had a lot of downtime sitting in my bunk, reading and just sitting there and contemplating my future. 
And finally, I was like, this isn't for me. So they came back and I said, okay, you can get out an honorable discharge. I came home and the first month was great, man. It was like, I don't have to get up three. You are free. Yeah. I don't have to run five miles today. I don't have to say yes, sir. No, sir. The second month kind of hit and I was like, oh shit, I, I got to get a job, man. You know, I'm 20, almost 21. I'm living back at my mom's house. I don't have a job. I don't have a car. I got to start paying for groceries. Like, what, what am I going to do now? And then the third month hit and I got, I fell into a deep depression. I was, I was drinking every day. Started smoking pot again because now I don't have drug, uh, no testing. No testing. And I was getting some pain pills when my buddies would come through. They, the pain pills wasn't a lot at that time, but the weed was every day and the drinking was every day. And I remember sitting in my bedroom and I went into my father's armoire and I grabbed his gun and I sat it on my lap. And I'm sitting here looking at the gun. And I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? So I called my girlfriend. I said, hey, something's not right. I'm sitting here looking at a gun and I don't know what to do. She was at my house in like five minutes. She comes over, she takes it from me. That evening when my mom came home, I said, mom, something's wrong. I need to go see somebody. I didn't tell her I just had my stepfather's gun in her lap because she would have flipped out, had me committed. I would have went to the psych unit and all that stuff. Wouldn't have been good. Wouldn't have been good. But she did set up appointments for the doctors. We ended up going that next week. And at the time, they diagnosed me with bipolar 1 manic depressant disorder. Wow. It's a serious diagnosis. It is. So their first thing was to put me on medicines. And I, and I like to tell people this when it doesn't matter what you're put if the doctor puts you on medicine, whether it's a heart disease, kidney, liver, whatever, or, or uh, psychiatric reasons, be honest with your doctor. I was never honest with them. I didn't tell them I was drinking every day and smoking pot. Right, which can contribute to, the, to that uh, prognosis or yeah. whatever, that cl- classification. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the medicines and the dosages that they were giving me weren't working. Because you're smoking weed and drinking every day. And, drink, and, and, and when I would go back what to What were them, they giving you? I, oh man, I've gone through so much, but I think at the time it was Prozac, um, Lamictal. Yeah, the old Lamictal. Yeah, um, and then Lorazepam. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so, and I would go back every 30, 60 days. Lorazepam is just Xanax, right? Pretty much. Yeah. It's a, it's the, or Clonopin is it? The, the generic name for it. Yeah, I love Whatever that Whatever insurance don't want to pay for it. Yes, yes, yes. But I remember going back every 30, 60 days. How you feeling? This shit ain't working. What do you mean it's not working? I don't know. Whatever you're giving is not working. Okay, well, let, let's... Let's put you on some Zoloft and uh, we'll switch to something else. What are you drinking? I'm drink, drinking beer at the time. I was never into liquor in my early 20s and even up into my 30s. I never liked liquor. I always told myself, if I drink liquor, I'm going to turn into an asshole. Or I'm going to get into fights or something bad's going to happen. So I'll stick with the beer. And you drink a ton of beer. I drank 12 to 18 beers a day. Were you still in doing the exercise and stuff? That, that would come and go in spurts. I would drink for months. And then look at myself in the mirror and feel like shit. And be like, I got to get back to the gym. And then I'd go to the gym for months and start feeling good again. And be like, okay, I don't got to go no more. And then I would just stop going and then start picking up my, my drinking more heavy. I would still drink the days I was going to the gym, but it wouldn't be as much. But I would get that self-loathing kind of a thing. Like, man, I'm getting fat again. I don't look too good. I, I better get to the gym. And I would go. And when I went, it was 100%. That's been my whole life. It's zero or 100. I've never been a 50%. If I'm doing it, I'm doing it 100% and even beyond. So when I went to the gym, I, I committed myself and I went to the gym. And I would see a change in 90 days and feel really good about myself. It's interesting 90 days being such a, a marker in things. It is. 
So it's about 27 days forms a habit, 90 days forms a lifestyle. So after 27 days, whatever you're doing becomes a habit. Do it for almost. So if I can break this cookie thing for 27 days, it could become a lifestyle. It could a become non- a lifestyle. But who wants to let a non-cookie lifestyle? Even I like cookies, man. I, I have, like I told you, I had six cookies last month. <laughs> well, we're going to get to the cookies in a bit. So you're fucking, you're depressed. You're put on all this medication. You're drinking a fair amount of beer. Nothing's working. What happens? That cycle from going back and forth from the doctors, drinking, smoking weed, doing some painkillers here and there, went from What the are eight- you doing for work? Carpentry. All right. Keep so going. It, I don't it, mean to interrupt you. No, no. It was a perfect job for me. They didn't drug test. Right. You know, and a lot of us drank on the job sometimes. Everyone's kind of the same, just without the diagnosis. Yeah. Every, yeah, exactly. You know, four o'clock, three o'clock, whenever we got, there was always a guy with a cooler in the back of his pickup truck, and we'd have a couple beers before we even left, left the job site. Sure. So I was like, I was at home. Comfortable. Know, comfortable. Very comfortable. So that's what I did on and off. And since actually being out of the Marine Corps, up until the last 10 years, I went through 46 jobs. Carpentry jobs mostly? Not mostly, but different jobs. I sold rainbow vacuum cleaners for years, um, security. Why so much switching up? I look back on it now. It's because of my mental illness, my drug and alcohol addiction. So so how does the uh, mental illness progress and, and how does the, the alcoholism and the drug abuse progress? So I would be on these medicines. Does it fuck with your self-esteem when it they did. give you the diagnosis? Why, why, why do I have to be on these medicines? You're not on these medicines. I got to be on these medicines to feel like you? What the hell's wrong with me? Am I crazy? Yeah, I don't feel that great anyway. Well, you know what I'm saying. You oh, know, I'm yeah. comparing myself. You don't have to be on medicines. I got to be on medicines to live a life that you're living every day. What's going on with me? Why, why, am I, why was I born like this? And then shame. Absolutely. And shame, embarrassment. And then when the doctors couldn't pinpoint the drug that would work for me because I, they want this, this this there's something that's going to save him right some some substance is going to save him after a couple him. months i would say well screw it these medicines aren't working so i just stop taking them and then get back on my self medication you know and that's the merry go round absolutely on and off months months and i would take it for 3 6 months maybe 9 months was the longest time i was on medicine and it still wasn't working and and i would just say you know screw this i flush it down the toilet and just stop taking it and then just start self-medicating again because that seemed to work for me at the time. I was still going to work, still paying my bills. Me and my uh, wife, she wasn't my wife at the time. We, we had our daughter. She was expecting her second. I was functional. What happened to the, the, the friend, the ex? He lives in Utah now. Okay. He's a Mormon? I don't know. No, he's actually he's, he's a carpenter. He sells weed. Okay. So he, he's all right. He's doing And he good. never got upset that you got with his ex? No, because... When I got back from the Marines, they had broken up. Okay. They dated all through high school, all four years. And she was the, the cool girl that hung out with all the guys. And I never tried to hit on her. I never tried to pick up on her because she was my buddy's girlfriend. And I did respect that. And also, if I did, I wouldn't get no more weed or no more LSD. Sure. So I'll be screwed yeah. all, all kind of ways around. But yeah, when I came home from the Marines, she was at a party. And I was like, hey, how you doing? I'm doing. I'm single. Oh, you are? Okay. Well, maybe, would you like to go out? No. She never wanted nothing to do with me. Why? Because I was always known as the guy that would hit them and forget them. Okay. I'd go out with you for a week or two, get what I wanted, and I wouldn't call you back. And she didn't want to deal with that. No, she didn't want to deal with that at all. I called her house for two weeks trying to get her to pick up the phone. Finally, her mom picked up. You know, this is house phone days. 
Good old days. Yeah, the good old days. Mom would pick up and I would hear, Tim's on the phone. I tell him I'm not here. Oh, she's not here. And finally, Tim's on the phone. He's called two weeks in a row. You're going to talk to him. And she actually put it on the phone. And we got up talking. I said, look, we don't have to date or anything. I said, let's go smoke a joint and hang out and watch TV like we did back in high school. Okay. And it literally just started us as friends hanging out and smoking some pot, watching some movies. And I've been with her ever since, since 1995. Okay, so you have your first daughter, but you're you're not doing great. No, I'm I'm working at 84 Lumber at the time. I was a manager working in, in carpentry or car construction field and uh, drinking every day, smoking weed. They didn't have drug tests. My manager was getting me the weed at the time. So I, I would find who partied no matter where I was, and we would become really good friends. And uh, I kind of got bored of, of working there. So one day I just didn't go back. I was just like, no, I'm not going back. And my wife's like, we have a daughter. Like, we have one coming. Like, you can't just quit your job. I'll find something else. And I did. I ended up finding something else. But then that started the, the revolving door of jobs. I would be three, six months in, just quit, not go. It's like classic self-will run riot kind of shit. Yeah, I, that's, I, that's not made for me. I, I was always trying to find my purpose. Like, am I really just supposed to work at this grocery store like it's got to be something bigger for me this can't be what i was born to do is work at this damn grocery store it can't be so i've always been looking for that and i think that's what's always kept me lost what's kept you lost like finding needing a purpose needing a purpose finding a purpose i i truly believe we're all meant here for something some reason we all have some type of agenda to to fulfill before we die okay I really do. We're, we don't, we're not just born just to work nine to five and come home and pay the bills and sit on the couch and watch TV. You think there's a specific purpose? I, I think we each Like Howie has something. There's something that Howie is meant to do. Absolutely. And this is it? Do you think, do you think, he's, do you think he's fulfilling his purpose right now? I have, he might just be meant to be a good father or a good son, a good husband. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. We all have a different so purpose. is your wife fucking pissed when you're going from job to job or are you pulling it off? That you're- woman, uh, she deserves a damn Emmy, Oscars. She would be okay in the beginning because I was always able to find jobs. I would go into the interview. You guys didn't starve. No, I would go into the interview and I would get the job. It's not like I would have to go through several interviews. But after years... And I'm, I'm 32 now, so from 21 to 32, I just, it was a revolving door, on and off medicines, in and out of jobs. We had our second daughter. She was about two or three at the time, and I lost the job again. And she was like, what are you doing? What's going on? We have two kids now. You know, we have a mortgage. You know, we have bills. We have food. And I said, I just don't want to work anymore. And she says, what do you mean you just don't want to work anymore? I'm like, I don't want to work. I, I can collect unemployment for a year and uh, we'll be fine. You know, and she's like, well, what do you want to do? And this is when I get a bright ass idea at 32 years old. I miss competing. I miss sports. Well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do MMA. And she's like, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I'm not getting any younger. If I can do it for a couple of years, make some money, have some fun. I want to do it. And bless her heart. She said, okay, I'll give you a year. She said, if you can go and, and make some money and make this work, you can do it. But after a year, if you can't, if you're not bringing them any money and all you're doing is getting beat up, then that's it. And enough of this stuff. You got to get a real job and take care of our kids. 
I said, okay. Well, that one year ended up turning into a three-year MMA career of me fighting up and down the East Coast. What What did you know to do MMA? Like, like I know you knew you were a Golden Gloves boxer. What did you know? Like wrestling and I, I did a and- little bit of wrestling in high school. Not not much. Maybe uh, one year I, I took Taekwondo in middle school. For were you mostly years. punching? Mostly punching and grappling. Grappling, yeah. Um, taekwondo helped me with my kicks, so I knew a little bit about that. But I've always always intrigued. You know, growing up watching Bruce Lee. Sure. Um, you nunchucks and that on yeah, acid. I've, I've always liked that stuff. I thought it was really cool how you could beat up 30 guys. I know it was movie, but that always intrigued me to be that powerful to, you know, five, Capable. Guys, five guys surround you and you can take them all out and then you just brush your shoulder off and walk down the street like nothing happened. That was always something really cool to me. Yeah. Um, Did you ever have that happen? Did you ever get jumped by five guys and fuck them up and walk no, down the street? No, not like Mike Vallely. Did you ever see that? Video back in the day? No. You know the skateboarder Mike Vallely? No. Dude. Tell me what I'm what I'm missing. Mike Vallely is one of the pioneers of skateboarding. Okay. He was one of the first guys sponsored by Pal Peralta. Okay. With with Tony and Brandon and all them guys. He lived in DC. Okay. He was a badass dude. Uh-huh. And there's a video on YouTube of yeah. him. He's standing out of the grocery store or, or a, a gas station, and these four guys come up to him and they don't know who he is, and they start giving him shit because he's got tattoos on him, he's got a shaved head. That's what it is. They think he's a skinhead. Right. So they start messing with him. He tears off his jacket and he fucks up all four of these guys at once. It's an amazing video. You I'll check, have out, to see I'll it. check it's it out. It's insane. Okay. Let's get back to your fucking <laughs> MMA career. Were you drinking? Were you using? Were you depressed in that period? The depression kind of went away because you had a purpose. Up. I was back at the gym. I was training. My endorphins were up. My dopamine was up from, from training and right. sparring. And having a purpose. And having a purpose. I was doing something. That you wanted that, to do. That I wanted to do that I thought I was supposed to be doing. The drinking kind of went down to about six beers a day. But still, six I was beers still drinking. a day. Yeah, I, I, was, six beers I would that. come home from training after two and a half hours and make sure I had my six pack. Right. You know, so I, and I did. Even cutting weight. Because I walked around 180 pounds and I fought at 155. I would still cut my weight and still be drinking my six beers a day. You were making sure you allowed that. Uh-huh, would you starve yourself besides that? But you'd keep the six beers. I would keep the six That's beers. That's a good alcoholic. Yeah, absolutely. I got to have gotta have my alcohol. You know, they have good calories in them, right? I, supposedly. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but, so what happens? So three years I'm fighting. I'm making $1,500 a fight. Not much. Not much money. But um, I got to fight on TV a couple times. Got to fight in Atlantic City, Harris Casino. And it was, I will say this, the most amazing feeling I've ever had that drugs or alcohol could never top was coming out of the locker room with the lights going off, your music playing, and two to 3,000 people cheering for you. What was your music? I came out to, uh, till I collapsed, Eminem. Okay. I liked the beginning because it was left, right, left, like I was back in the military. Right, right, right. And uh, it just put me in a zone. But that, that adrenaline rush of coming out knowing you're about to step into a cage with somebody else and they're going to lock it behind you and it's just you and him. You got 15 minutes. One of you is either getting knocked out or choked out. That that adrenaline rush was something drugs and alcohol have never been able to touch. How did you do? Like, how often did you win? What would, Did you I ever went, get the shit kicked out of I you? I did. I went four and four. I lost my four, first four fights. Wow. Was your wife like, mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and all of my four first fights... Two were wrestling guys and two were jujitsu guys. Right. And I'm out. I guess I better start learning jujitsu because. So you lost your first four and you won your last four. That's cool. So why'd you stop after you won four in a row? So my last fight, I'm at Harris Casino in Philadelphia. 
and I'm fighting the guys for the 155 pound belt. And I put him in a rear naked choke and I take him down to the ground and I feel this pop in my shoulder. Oh boy. And my right shoulder's burning. I had to let go of the choke. He flips me over and uh, he chokes me. And I get up and my arm's kind of hanging. I'm like, something's wrong. Shit. You know, we, we hug each other and, and, you know, give each other a pat on the back. And I get back into the locker room and I go to put my shirt on and I can't lift my right arm. Mm. It's like, it's just hanging there. So my trainer comes over. What's wrong? I said, I can't lift my arm. He said, okay, he helps him put my shirt on. We got into the casino where 30 of my friends and family had come to see me because it was televised. It was for, for a belt. It was a big deal. And my wife hands me a beer. And even though I'm left-handed, I, I write and draw with my left hand. I'm dominant right hand. And I grab the beer with my left hand. And she's like, why did you just grab the beer with your left hand? I said, I can't move my right hand. She said, are you kidding me? I'm like, no. She said, you're done. She said, that's it. You're 35. You had three years. Now we have to go to the doctors and see what the hell is going on. So that next week comes, I go to the doctors. I torn my labrum in three places. Mm. So now I have to have rotator cuff surgery. Have the rotator cuff surgery. And that starts my four-year-long pain pill prescription addiction wow. to Oxycontin. And also, you're out of what you wanted to do. I'm out of what I wanted so to do. So what are you doing? It's nine months. I was Also, before you even get into this, I'm yeah. just curious. When you're a professional fighter and you're fighting these people, you said at the last fight you hugged the, the opponent, yeah. whatever. Is it always like that? 90% of the time, you respect each other. There's always that 10% you're going to get an asshole that wants nothing to do with you after it, even though you know you both know what you put into that training to get to that point. Mostly it's respect. It's mostly respect, absolutely. Okay. 100%. Usually you hug after, you talk to each other, right. great job, buddy, I'm right. proud of you, you know, and you go your separate ways. Was there, But is deep down, when like if somebody hits you, do you fucking want to kill them? So going into the, whether it's the ring or the cage, even leading up to it, if you see the person backstage, you, you, you want to kill them. Right. You're like, we're not friends. Right. We're not talking to each other. You come over here, I'm punching you. Like, and you have to have that mentality going into that space. When it's done and over with, the 12 weeks of training are over. The anxiety's over. The fight's the over. The nervousness is over. Everything's over. Now you can become human again, if that makes sense. And you've endured something together. Absolutely. You have, some, you have bond that nobody else can take from you. You know, that fight where I tore my rotator cuff, me and him actually became really good friends. And we're still friends to this day. All right. So you get out of there. You, you fuck up your labrum and, 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 and you get prescribed oxy straight away. So the first month they gave me hydrocodones. But you knew what you were taking. I, yeah. So the first month they gave me hydrocodones and I go back after 30 days. How are they doing? And they just don't have the kick. You know, right. they're not taking away the pain. I'm not high. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just not high. You know, I'll take four of them and it's, it's not doing nothing. Okay, well, we'll put you on Percocet 10s. So they put me on Percocet 10s for about two months. That always screwed my stomach up. It knocked my stomach up. I couldn't go to the bathroom. Like the Percocet just really jacked me up. So finally, after about three or four months of being on the oxys, I mean, the hydrocodones and the Percocets, I go back in. I'm like, hey, the, the perks aren't working. My stomach's messed up. I'm nauseated. Okay. We're going to put you on these stuff called Oxycontins. What so, year is it? So uh, I'm, I'm 35. So I'm 46 now. So 11 years ago, 2011. So it's like, it's kind of like at the end of the oxy world, probably. 
Yeah, but he still presented them to me as you can take these because they're not addictive. It was pre big pharma being outed and all the big yeah, Purdue. Yeah, and all yeah, shit. you can take yeah. these. They're right. not addictive. But you, you knew they them. were addicted, any, addictive anyway. Yeah, I like the oxys. Who doesn't? And when he prescribed me oxys, I was like, hell yeah. Okay, now we're now we're cooking with something. I can take these. Well, that ended up being a three and a half years long just on the oxys, twenty milligrams, and I wasn't taking one every four hours. It was two to three every four hours, running, running through my script two weeks into the month, having to call my buddies to come down and, and set me up for two weeks until I got my prescription filled to get me over, and then taking pretty much whatever they would give me, perks, oxys, you know, um, hydrocodone, whatever they could get their hands on just to get me through until my prescription was filled. Sure. And I would, of course, every once in a while, pull the, uh, I knocked them into my toilet. Um, I, I need to get a fill real, you know, I've been on it for a year and a half. I can't just stop taking them. You, you got to fill me up. And they would do that every once in a while. But you can only play that card so much. Then they know you're taking way too much. So now I'm, I'm taking 8 to 10, 20 milligram oxys a day, drinking at least 12 beers a day. Right. And I'm smoking an eighth to a quarter of weed a day. That's a lot of bud. Yeah. I, I liked my bud. Yeah, me I, too. I, I really did. Um, to me, it was, it was, it was just weed. Yeah. yeah, for me it was the greatest. But yeah. I, but I'm with you. So that's a bunch of alcohol, a bunch of fucking opiates, and a and a bunch of butt. Yeah, I mean that was my that was my trifecta. That's what made me feel normal. You were doing carpentry then too, or are you I doing? Was, I yeah. was doing carpentry because you could. Yeah, I could yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And your you know tolerance I mean? was such that that didn't even touch you. I was a high functioning addict. Sure. My half the time, my employers didn't even know I had a drug addiction or alcohol. or they had one, and, or they, and yours didn't really like, register. One hundred percent. Yeah, or we would smoke a joint at lunchtime together. So that was it, it. Yeah, it really didn't matter. But it got to the point where I literally got scared of how much opioids I was taking and yeah. how much alcohol I was drinking, and I was like, man, you know, I've been taking this for three and a half years, even though it's normal for me to be taking this much every single day. There's a chance my body's going to say, you know what? Fuck you. I'm done. And we can't take any and enough. And I'm going to die one night when I go to sleep. You were starting to fear an OD. I was. Yeah. I really was. Because even though I was taking it for so long, and this is what I'm used to taking it, my body can't be doing good right now. You knew you were doing the wrong thing. Yeah, 100%. And I got scared. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going out like that. I'm not going out in my sleep. If I'm going out, I'm doing it myself. And I go into my bedroom and reach over on my nightstand. And I empty the pill bottle in my hand. And I have 18, 20 milligram oxys. Hold up, though. You're fearful of dying from overdose. But th is the depression back and so intense that you're like, I don't want to die like that. I want to be in charge of when I die. Because it's a big jump to it be is. scared to then take a handful of pills. You know, to be scared of dying no, no, and then no, being no, like, I'm going to fucking do it. The depression, I think, has always been underlying. Okay. It's always been there and gone. It would come and go and come and go. But again, the, the me being in control thing. The illusion. Right. right. The ego. Right. I'm going to do this on my terms. Right. I'm not going to do it on its terms. Right. I'm making the decision. And you have two kids at the time. I have two kids at the time. And you, and you had 18, 20 milligram oxys and you figured that would do it. Absolutely. I mean, shouldn't it? I don't know. I, I mean, like, I felt like I've taken, I used to take some shots where I thought it was going to be the end of me and it wasn't right. the end of me right. at all. <laughs> I, mean, I figured these 18, I'll go out into the living room, drink that 12 pack of beer I got in the refrigerator. That should definitely do, do the trick. So um, I take all 18, I go out into the living room, I crack open the 12 pack. Now, granted, it was Miller Lite. Yeah. 
It's not going to do it. No. <laughs> but I did drink all 12 of them. Yeah. And I, and I remember going into the bedroom and laying on the bed and saying, please, God, don't let me wake up because I don't want to live this way and I don't know how to stop. And I pass out. I wake up the next day, like, it had to have been like 12, 15 hours later. It was evening time when I woke up. And the first thought I got in my head was, holy shit, I didn't die. The second thought was to go into the bathroom and grab my refill and dump it into the toilet. Wow. Because my second thought would be, I ran out of oxys and I'm going to be sick. Now that... Um, you were like, this is it. This is it. You yeah. feel like there was a sign. It was, the purpose. You're always about your purpose. Yeah. And if you lived, you were like, there is something else here. Absolutely. It was like, you know how when we finally say enough's enough and we're going to get help, it's that moment where something clicks in your brain and, and you're like, okay, that's it. That's like, I'm done. It's amazing that it happened the next morning because you were still fucking high as shit. Oh I'm my sure. God. Yeah. I was, it was like being half drunk and, and you know, it's like somebody hit me in the head like I had a concussion. But I remember going into the bathroom and, and dumping it all into the toilet. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I looked like shit. And I said, don't forget how this is going to make you feel because we never want to go through this again. I love the we. What's yeah. the we in that situation? It's an interesting thing it though, is. because I know, I, I know that we, because I remember I would be like, we really fucked up this time. Or like you show up and I show up in detox. I'm like, fuck, how did we get ourselves into this situation? Right. Like, what is that we in that time of our lives? It's like, it's like, it's like the worst version of yourself with the self that you want to be maybe like, yeah, I, I mean, I think we always know what we're capable of and what we can do and, and what we're worth in life. And, but and, somehow the psyche splits at yeah, that bottom and all of a sudden yeah. I become a we, it's right. interesting. It's like, what are we doing? Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. What, what the hell are we doing right now? And it's when things are bad that that we is like very present. I think it's just weird. Cause I heard, I heard you say that before and I was like, what's that we? Because yeah. I know that we, though. You know? It's interesting. They, they say we, we have two personalities. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, you have your conscious and then... Um, the subconscious, subconscious, the ego, whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know what I mean? So, but I remember saying that. And for the next 10 days, every day when I woke up, in between the throwing up and the going to the bathroom and the crying and the snotting... Kicking. Yeah. I would look in the mirror and say, don't forget this. We're never going through this again. Right. And you're telling yourself, you're taking, yeah, you're trying myself, to take care of yourself. Telling myself this in the mirror every morning in between throwing up and, and going to the bathroom and crying. And we're going to be okay. Yep. Don't forget this feeling. We're never doing this again. And that was the last time I took pain medicine. It's been 11 years, like no pain medicine whatsoever. But I stayed in that house for 10 days and was completely sick. You know, I couldn't sleep. The whole the whole gambit of coming off of opioids after four years. It's bad. It's awful. Yeah. Probably the sickest I think I've ever been. And I had COVID last year. And that was pretty bad for It's me. pretty similar, right? It was, yeah. It's, I mean, it's all like, it all comes back. Yeah. So, but um, that was the worst I think I've ever been. And at the end of the 10 days, I was like, I got to get out of the house, man. I've been locked up in here for 10 days, getting sick, you know, throwing up my mind. And, and I get in the truck to go, we have a, a beautiful place called Lock Raven Reservoir. And people go hiking and biking and fishing and picnicking. It's a really cool place. We used to go there in high school and, and smoke weed. We cut Sounds like the spot. We cut class and go smoke weed and then, and then go finish the last two quarters of the classroom. And I'm driving through the park, man, and I'm, I'm crying. And I'm like, why did I live? What's my purpose? Why am I here? If, if there's something else out there, and I'm not just saying God. I'm saying a, a, 
a spiritual entity, a higher being, something, if there's something else out there, why are you letting me suffer so bad? If you love me so much and you created me, why am I suffering so bad? You can't love me and then put me through all this. That, that, that was my mindset at the, at the time. There's no possible way that you exist if you're going to allow me to suffer so bad. And I'm driving through the park and I get to this tree where in 90, 1996, my best friend at the age of 18 lost control of his vehicle and hit the tree and he died. And his parents put a little vigil at the tree. They have a book there. You can put flowers there and they have a picture of him actually hanging on the tree. And this is March 16th, 2017. I remember this day forever. And I get out and I go up to the tree and I'm crying. And I'm like, Bill, his name's Bill. I was like, Bill, I don't know what to do, man. I can't stop drinking. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I, I've lost jobs. Me and my wife are fighting. You know, I, I lived. I don't know why I'm here. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything. If there's something else out there, something at all, please send me a sign because I truly don't believe in anything other than, you know, this life that I know. I don't, I don't believe it. Did you speak that out loud? Yeah. And I'm speaking to the tree. I got my hand on the tree. I'm crying and I'm, I'm speaking out loud to him. I'm like, please send me a sign that there's something else out there because I don't know why I'm here. And I get in my truck and I go to leave. And as I'm leaving the park, I'm crying, I'm snotting. So I pull over on the side of the road. But I don't pull over on the right-hand side like I'm supposed to be because that's how you're leaving the park. I pull over on the left-hand side facing oncoming traffic. And I sit there and I park and I'm wiping my snot and my eyes. And about 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up. And now he's, we're head-to-head, -head, windshield to windshield because I'm on the opposite side of the road. And I'm watching this man get out, older gentleman, grabs his dog. He's about to go walk across the street where the water is. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, man. He looks familiar. I've seen him someplace before. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me. It was my best friend who died in 1996. Bill. Bill. This is his father, Mr. Bill. This is March 16, 2017, 21 years later. I haven't seen this man since the day of my friend's funeral in 1996. And I get out of the truck, and I say, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he looks at me and says, Timmy? And I said, yeah. And he goes, what's wrong? And I fall through the curb and I'm crying. I was like, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know why I lived. I don't know what my purpose is here. I, I, I don't. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night. She told me to come here this morning at 10 a.m. Was his wife alive or dead? His wife had passed two years prior. Aye, aye. Um, that died of cancer. He said, she came to a dream to me last night and told me to come walk the dog at 10 a.m. He goes, I'm supposed to be in South Carolina. I was supposed to leave this morning for a family reunion trip, but I came here to walk the dog. I believe I was sent here to see you. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to send me a sign. And he says, Timmy, they're looking out over us. It's okay. You're protected. You're going to be watched out over. And we hugged. Did you have any kind of experiences like this before? Never. That's a crazy fucking thing. The only thing that ever happened to me remotely like that was when my mother and stepfather went to Cancun, Mexico. I was in high school. And I had a dream that they came home from the trip. And she walks in the front door and she hands me this. Remember the bracelets people used to make? Like they used to uh, knot them and rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a Cancun bracelet and it said Cancun on it. 
And she hands it to me and she says, let's go to Friendly's and get Sundays. And we leave the house and we get into an automobile accident and we all die. My mom and stepdad come home from Cancun. They walk in the door from the airport. And my mom walks in and she says, I got something from you for you from Cancun. And I look at her and I say, is it a bracelet that says Cancun on it? She looks at me and she says, yes. And she, you're like, I'm not going to Friendly's. She against- pulls it out of the bag. And I said, do you want to go to Friendly's to get Sundays? She said, I was just about to say that. I said, we can't go. That's crazy. She said, what do you mean? I said, I had a dream last night that you came in, you gave me that bracelet. We got into a car to go to Friendly's and we all died in a car automobile accident. She, I remember she turned white. So that's interesting because we all run up against this crazy destined weird thing maybe sometimes in shallow sleep maybe sometimes right. in crazy withdrawal in these moments we run up against it in these weird places it's very hard to make sense of anyway you see bill's dad yeah he says he had this dream he ran up against it too and and how does your life change so as i'm leaving the park i got 10 minutes of man everything's going to be okay i'm being protected i'm being watched nothing is going to happen to me it was relief. It was relief for about 10 minutes. And I only say 10 minutes because as I leave the park and I'm coming out and I'm like, everything's going to be okay, that monster of addiction steps in and says, yes, it is. Nothing's going to happen to you. And then that we, the, the addict, and he says, we're going to be just fine. We're going to be just Tim. fine. You don't have to stop doing what you're doing because right. you're being protected. Right. So for the next four years is the most alcohol I've ever drank in my entire life. Because I literally thought I was being watched over and protected. Nothing was going to happen to me. Why do I have to stop? Because that's what that addictive brain told me. What was your life at home in that period? We had been fighting all the time. Thank God I was never physically abusive. I never never touched my kids, never touched my wife. But I was a verbal monster. I would say the meanest, nastiest shit to the people I love the most. Right. And wake up the next morning. Good morning, guys. How you And they're all still licking their wounds from the night before. The nastiest shit I said to them. And I have no memory of what I said or what trauma I'm, I might have put them through from. And they didn't leave. No. No, my wife has stuck by me through everything. I'm, I'm a lucky son of a bitch, man. How did you get out of it? That last year, uh, the beer wouldn't, wasn't doing it enough for me. I said, you know what? This ain't doing it. I missed, I missed the pain pills. I missed that feeling. That Were you they, smoking Bud too? I was smoking Bud. The Bud never stopped and the alcohol never stopped. Bud was a staple in my life. Ever since I got out of the Marine Corps up until I went to rehab every day. That Bud was, that was like eating lunch. Yeah. Bud was happening. Sure. And so was the alcohol. But that last year, the, the, the Killians wasn't doing it. The Miller Light, the Bud Light, that shit wasn't doing it. So I switched to the IPAs, you know, the 10, 11, 12% beers. And I was still drinking 12 of those. And wake up and feel like shit the next day. I'm like, I can't be doing this, you know, but I got that. That itch, I'm missing those pain pills, man. I remember taking them and getting that warm, hot blanket feeling that engulfed my body, you know, and your, your toes tingly and just that ah, feeling of everything just leaves your body. Yeah, total, total comfort. Everything's yeah, going to be okay. Absolutely. So I was at the liquor store one day getting my beer and I just reached over and grabbed uh, four of the uh, Fireball miniatures right off the counter. I was like, I'll, I'll check them out. I was never a liquor guy. I never really wanted to, but I figured if I was going to do it, I like big red gum. I like the, the you like little, cinnamon. I like cinnamon. How, how, could, how bad could it be? So I remember taking two of them in the parking lot before I even drove off. And within 20 seconds, my feet were hot. My chest was hot. 
it delivered what you wanted. I was like, oh yeah, this this is this is what I've been missing. So those four or five shots, those four or five miniatures, and my twelve pack started to to dwindle down to ten miniatures and and, and six beers, twenty miniatures and no beers. That last year of my drinking, I completely stopped drinking beer altogether. I would wake up at 6.30 in the morning and go to the liquor store that opened at 7, and I'd grab a sleeve of Fireball Miniatures, which is 10 of them in a pack. I would drink all- Never the whole bottle. You know, always buy the miniatures. My personality told me, don't buy the bottle, because then I would have accountability of how much Someone would see the bottle. They would know, you drank that whole bottle today? Right. Man, you're an alcoholic. Right, right. I would have the accountability of knowing exactly how much. Right. Those miniatures, you can drink down and the road, gone. throw no, them out no the window. No one's going to see them, yeah. Hide them, forget about them. Right. Only you knew. Only I knew. Right. And then sometimes I'd even forget because I drank so many of them. I right. was drunk and you I didn't You could lie remember. to yourself, yeah. Lie to myself. No accountability whatsoever. So I would get 10 of them. I'd finish them between, by one o'clock, by lunch. I still have two more hours till I got off of work. Soon as I left the job site, I would stop at the liquor store and get 10 more. I would drink five of those before I even walked in the front door of my house. I would finish the other five by 8 p.m. that night and be back at the liquor store and get another 10. The last year of my life drinking, I was drinking 25 to 30 fireball miniatures every single day. And one day I was like, I wonder how much alcohol is in here. So I, I took one of those miniatures and I dumped it into a shot glass. One of those miniatures is two and a half shots. Right. So two and a half times 25 times 30. I was drinking like between 60 to 80 fireball shots a day. Ridiculous. It's, it's insane. And what was your life like then? It started to completely fall out of my control. Me and my wife were not getting along whatsoever. My, produ- my productivity and quality of work went, went to shit. And your kids? They would scatter like cockroaches with the lights coming on when I walked in the front door. Right. It's like, fuck, we don't want to deal with, deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that was awesome. Because you had your freedom. To, I didn't, to have, be, to, be I didn't have to talk to nobody. Right. I could sit in front of TV, play PlayStation, watch a movie, drink my fireballs, and nobody messed with me. It was great for me. But little did I know, my, my, my two daughters and my oldest, who was living upstairs at the time, were scared of shit of their father. Because I would, I would turn into a, a verbal monster. And I'm, for three little girls to see me get angry and mad and flip over a table, that's a scary thing. Carb. That's you, a you scary don't want, thing. Yeah, you don't want that. No. For a little girl to see their father flip out and yell and scream. And, and I try not to think about it too much, but then again, I can't forget my past because I'll forget my future then. It's, it's an opportunity that you did it to never do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what, what's the fucking, what's the low that, that, that changes your life? So that truck I have out front, I, I, I got it. I had it about three months and I'm going to the liquor store. I grab my 10 miniatures. I'm driving home. It's not even 90 days old yet. And I hit something. I still to this day have no idea what I hit. I don't know if it was a concrete barrier, <laughs> right. a parked car. I have no idea. Right. It wasn't a person. It wasn't a it person. Wasn't an I know that for yeah, a fact. It wasn't, it wasn't a person. Because my car was all messed up. Right. And uh, luckily, I only was a block away from the... I literally live a block from three liquor stores where, I, where my house is. And I pulled into the driveway, and I remember walking in the front door, and I tell my wife, I hit something. I'm not dealing with this shit. I'm going to bed. And I go to bed. And I wake up that next morning like a, like a good alcoholic does. Hey, good morning, babe. 
I'm gonna go to the grocery store, get milk and bread and eggs. What do you what do you guys need from the grocery store? And she looks at me and she says, How the hell are you gonna do that? I'm like, in my new truck in the driveway. She says, Go look at your truck in the driveway. So I go outside and my right side mirror's off. It's completely gone. And the front passenger tire is hanging off the rim and the rim's pushed up underneath the front bumper. You fucked it up. I'm like, I'm sitting there looking at it. I don't even know how I drove it home other than that oh shit factor kicked in my head. And I'm like, I can't get pulled over. I'm, I'm going to drive this thing till, till it stops. Till it stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I made it into my driveway. And she pops her head out the front door. She's like, uh, you don't know what you hit, do you? I said, I have no memory. You could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. You can't stay here anymore. Mm. I don't want you around the kids. This is enough. You have to go. I'm like, okay. So I called AAA. They, they put a spare tire on for me. I go pack my backpack up and I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, man, uh, can I come stay over for a couple days? Let's give my wife three or four days. She'll cool down after three or four days. She'll let me back in and I can continue life as normal. Like nothing ever happened. She's just mad right now. So I go to, her, go to his house. It's a Friday night. He's like, dude, you just got kicked out of your house. It's Friday night. We might as well go to the bar, man. I'm like, you know what? It's a hell of an idea because now I have a purpose and a reason to go. My wife just kicked me out. You know, I, Something I, to drink over. I might as well go to the bar because I'm justifying my alcoholism. So we go to the bar. I get completely shit-faced. As I'm leaving the bar, this is less than 12 hours later from me wrecking it the night before, maybe even 15 hours, I come to a red light and I rear-end somebody. Oh, boy. And I get out. Luckily, the guy had a truck and he had a tow hitch on his truck. So his truck actually was fine. But now my front bumper's all smashed in. And I get out and I look at the guy. I'm like, are you okay, man? He said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, your truck's okay. He goes, yeah, yeah, truck's okay. I'm good. I said, okay, you're good. Truck's okay. I slapped him on his back, jumped in my truck, and I took off. I totally knew I was going to jail. I was completely drunk. So I took off. I get to my buddy's house. I'm like, dude, I... I I can't stay here. I got to go think about shit. I got to be by myself. Okay, man, whatever. Just come back when you're done. So I grab my stuff, stop at the liquor store, get my miniatures, and I go and I park in a parking ride, you know, where people park their car for the day and jump on a train or whatever. And I turn my, turn my truck off, turn my phone off. I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to hear from anybody. And I sat in my truck for 48 hours. Drinking and passing out, drinking and passing out, thinking about all the shit that I put my family through, all the disappointing moments that I, I've, I've brought upon my life, thinking about how my kids need a, a better father, my wife deserves a better husband, my parents deserve a better son, and what a piece of shit I am, just really just putting myself through the whole ringer of what a failure in life I've become, and I'm an alcoholic, an addict, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm destined to live this life. Like, I'm not worth anything. And I'm completely just putting myself through, a, through the ringer, man. And March 5th, at 7 after 10 in the morning, after having my phone off for two days, I turn it on. Two minutes later, the rings. And I look down, and it says, Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm like, who the hell is from Westchester, Pennsylvania? But for some reason, I pick it up. It's Brandon Novak. Right. He's like, Lodging, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, I'm cold, I'm drunk, I'm hungry, and I'm tired. Did your wife call him? My wife called him. 
And my friend Chris Novak called them because they were worried about me. They couldn't find me. Nobody could get in touch with me. And so they reached out to Brandon because at this time now he's working for Banyan. Sure. He's helping people. And he's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm cold, I'm drunk, I'm hungry, and I'm tired. And he says, good, motherfucker, that's what you need. He's like, I got a plane ticket ready for you tonight, 8.30. I got you in the Banyan Treatment Centers down West Palm Beach, Florida. I want you to get on that plane and get your life back. And for me, I was kind of just like, okay, man, yeah, okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm basically answering him so I can just hang up the phone because I really didn't want to hear that shit. I hang up the phone. Five minutes later, my wife calls. She says, hey, uh, where are you at? I'm like, I'm at a parking ride. She said, we've been worried sick. Everybody's been trying to call you. I talked to Brandon. Can you please come home and pack your bags, take a shower, try to eat something, and take a nap? I had like four hours until I got to the airport. I'm like, okay. So I go home, I take a shower, pack my bags. I couldn't eat, and I couldn't take a nap. I'm in full anxiety mode at this point. I'm like, holy shit, I got to go to Florida. How long? He didn't tell me how long. Am I going 30 days, 60 days? Is it a six-month program? What about my job? Like, how the hell did I get my life into this point where I got to go to rehab now in a different state for God knows how long? And you didn't really want to go up to I, there. No. You, you were just kind of like getting on with your life. Yeah. I was. I, I, I agreed with him to hang up the phone. Now my wife's committed to this. My mom knows about it. And I got to go. Like, I, whether I want to or not, I got to go. With this the point. only way out of this is through kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, so I'm sitting on my bed, and I'm, I, I'm talking, trying to talk myself out of it. I can't go. I can't do this. I can't be gone for 30, 60, 90 days. I, I, don't, I, I can't do it. And one last time, my addiction steps in and says, come with me. We can end the pain. And my addiction grabs my hand, and it walks me into the basement of my home. Oh, God. And I throw a rope around my neck. And I stand up on a bucket and it tells me to jump and end the pain. And I listen and I go into the basement of my home where my kids are. And I stand up on this bucket and I put the rope around my neck and I'm about to step off. And my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom anymore. And she comes down the steps and she finds me in the corner of the basement in the dark, hysterically crying standing on this bucket with this rope around my neck. And she looks at me and says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't, I can't do it. I can't go. I just want the pain to stop. And I don't know how. And she looks at me and says, do you know what this would do to your little girls? Please, please get down and everything will be okay. Get on that plane and everything is going to be all right. So I get down, <clears throat> I fall to the floor, and I cry for like five, ten minutes. And I walk up the steps. I call Brandon. I'm like, hey, man, I'm going. I got to go. If I don't get on that plane tonight, my addiction is going to kill me. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. I want to make sure your ass is getting on the plane and not catching the cab after you get dropped off. I'm like, okay, man. My mom comes, takes me to the airport a couple hours later. I get past security. I call him and say, hey, buddy, I got uh, 35 minutes to the plane boards. I'm getting on. I'm going. He's like, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything that you've ever lost times 10. And he simply just hangs the phone up. As I go to sit down at the seat, waiting for them to call me to board the plane at this airport, 
as I sit down at this chair, this overwhelming feeling of hope comes over my entire body. It was the same exact warm blanket feeling that drugs and alcohol had given me. Hope. Except this time, my worry, my doubt, my fear, my anxiety, my panic, all leave my body. And I hear this voice that I've never heard before or since. And it was a woman's voice. And she simply says, everything is going to be okay. It was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my entire life. And at that exact moment, I knew at the age of 44 years old, I was finally going to get the help I needed to save my life. My mindset changed immediately. I said, okay, we're doing this. I'm going 100 miles an hour, and I'm doing this recovery, and I'm, I'm getting everything I can out of it. I got to Banyan. I, I didn't miss a meeting. It's very, this is a very unusual story. You know yeah. that, right? It's, I think you're like attuned to some other frequency that you're picking up some weird shit that most people don't get to pick up. And it's bad sometimes, but sometimes it's really good. Yeah. And like, thank God you got the message then. And uh, it's like that feeling of feeling like things can be okay. That's enough if you can just hold on to it. You know what I mean? And, and keep going back to it. So you go to Banyan, and, and that was uh, two years ago, almost two years ago? Yeah, I got, like, I got like there. That 23 months ago, today. 23, 23 months ago in two days, yeah. So, yeah. like, so what have you been doing? Like, what's your, what do, you, what do you do to keep your shit together? What do you do from not craving the warmth from something besides hope? I truly believe that experience at that airport took my cravings for drugs and alcohol away that was your fucking bill that, w white light that experience. was my first yeah that was my spiritual experience but i changed when i got to banyan i changed my diet i started working out with a personal trainer three days a week which started helping my self-confidence again i got put on uh seroquil for my racing thoughts for at night to go to sleep and lexapro only five milligrams really small stuff but it seems to be working without the drugs and alcohol in my system go figure but uh, it actually seems to work. It keeps me at a, at a pretty even plane. I don't even know if the Lexapro even works. It's five milligrams. Money might even be goddamn placebo pills. Just keep taking but, it. Oh, no, but I, I, I take it every morning. And I, I tell myself, I don't even know if this stuff works, but I, I feel great, and I'm just going to keep taking it. And uh, when I came home, I immediately found a home group, and I went to AA, got a sponsor, started working the 12 Steps, 12 Traditions, you did the steps? I did the steps. No, yep. I got a sponsor. Um, actually, the first sponsor I went to was kind of like a uh, honorary sponsor. He wasn't sponsoring anybody at the time, but he said he would tip through, through the steps with me until I found my new sponsor, Jeff. And Jeff's been with me for 18 months now. He's got 47 years clean and sober. So he's a real good guy. So what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis now? So uh, the first 18 months, I went to meetings four or five times a week. That kept me really, really sober, and I started reading. And then I said, you know what? I got to find more balance in my life because I would go to work and then have an hour before a meeting and then go to a meeting and come home and only have like an hour before I went to bed. And I was kind of like, I got to spend more time with my family. I got to go to the gym. I want to start working, working out more. So that four to five days a week started dwindling down to about three days a week, which I would keep to the weekends. I would do two on Saturday and uh, one on Sunday. 
And Monday I'd go to work, Monday through Friday, come home, and I'd go to the gym immediately when I came home. And as soon as I got home from the gym, it was family time. I could spend time with my kids. We could eat dinner together, watch movies together, because now they wanted to be around me. That's nice. They wanted to spend time with me. When I walked in the door, they came to the front door to see me. Right. Completely different atmosphere. My home completely changed. Um, No more hostile environment, no more anxiety, no more panic from the kids. There's no turmoil in my home anymore. I'm sure sometimes there's a little turmoil. How could there not be? My wife tells everybody that she has to literally pull my teeth out for me to even raise my voice anymore. I don't want to be that guy anymore. Of course. And you, I, and you were given a gift. Yeah, I, I just, that guy scares me, man. I don't want to be him anymore. You don't have to. I, I don't have to. And when I was at Banyan, I told a couple of people my story. I was really shy about staring, sharing my story. But this guy kept coming up to me. He said, man, you got to share your story. I was like, I'm not, I'm not, not, not in a room of 60 people. I'm not doing it. You got to share your story. You got to share your story. He kept telling me the whole time I was at Banyan. When I came home, I, I changed the people I started listening to and the people I started watching. I started following recovery podcasts, recovery pages, motivational things, just anything that had to do with recovery, AANA. I just started following them and listening to what they had to say. And I came across this podcast, Braving the Journey, out of Hawaii. Guy was an alcoholic. He had three years clean. He decided to do a podcast just to share his story and hopefully reach the other, uh, another alcoholic. And I listened to him. And I said, you know what? Maybe I'll message him. Maybe I can share my story with him. I'll try it. So I messaged him. He messaged me back. I got to share my story. Two weeks after it aired, I'm sitting in Delaware picking up a table to go take the Novak for his treatment center in, in Delaware. And as I'm sitting in the garage waiting for the guy to open the door so I can load my pickup truck up, my phone rings. And it says Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm thinking it's a scam call or something else, but I pick it up. I'm like, hello. And the guy's like, hey, is this Tim? I'm like, yeah, who's this? He said, it's Tony. I'm like, I don't know no Tonys, man. I'm sorry. He said, no, I served with you in the Marine Corps in 1995. I'm like, this is fucking 2021. I'm like, how'd you get my number, man? He's like, I got it off of Facebook. I hope you don't mind. I'm like, no, what's going on? I'm not doing good. I'm like, what's the problem? He goes, I've been an alcoholic and addicted to pain pills for 18 years. He said, I had to call you. Because I listened to your podcast you did and that just aired. He's like, I listened to it four days ago. He goes, dude, I'm four days sober for the wow. first time in 18 years. I had to call you and tell you thank you because you had the strength to share your story. has given me the strength to get the help I needed. We talked for about 10 more minutes. I hung up the phone and I, I sat in the truck and cried for like 10 minutes. I'm like, man, I reached somebody with my story. What are the chances that the person that I reached, I had personally known? That's not a coincidence. No. That happened for a reason. And finally, your purpose. Exactly. So that's when I said, you know what? I'm messaging as many podcasts as possible so I could reach one more person. See, our show is like, it's not very messaging. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why. Like, I mean, like, obviously people get help from our show and people, people I always want people to get company. Yeah. I wanted people to be able to hang out and feel like they're not alone. But it's really just like I want it to be a good show. It is. But when yeah. you but when you messaged me and you were like, I want to tell my story, I was like, what the fuck? Everybody has a story. But your story is very inspiring. And your and your purpose is very beautiful. And your sincerity around these things 
it 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 it's it's it warms my heart. I appreciate that. It Thank really you. does. And I and I think that story, like, man, I I we don't have enough like good old alcohol stories, and enough not enough people are willing to go where you went with mental illness and and with salvation. And I think that you definitely helped some people. And I know our audience has a lot of fucking people just like you and just like me. And I know that they're going to benefit from this. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I really appreciate you coming through. What do you think? Man, I, you've been on a hundred podcasts. Was this you, one the best? You are 100. What, but it was, it was the best, right? You have been awesome, man. Absolutely. Tim, tell, come on. Tell it's me. been the best. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, no, no. You, you actually you are you mark 100 well i'm happy that we did and um you don't need to say that we're the best i, I, have, I have problems i have insecurity issues obviously but uh i really you know i'm a little emotional you see how you see the emotion do you see the emotion i, I do i see it. i'm emotional uh i think this was a beautiful talk and i really appreciate you coming on now, thank you for the opportunity but i'm going to say one thing get back to fucking aa because you can give back to it I, I I know. I, I just know. go back, go back. Even if you don't feel like you need, go once a week. You know. You know. I'll be completely honest with you. Yeah. I had a little bit of a, a beef. A little bit because you know it's been three months since I've been in my home group. Uh huh. Only one person has called me. Get that out of your head. I know, and that's what I said. Get that. <laughs> that shit is that's dangerous. But, that thought. I'm glad you said it, I'm but like, that's a dangerous. Not even thought. my sponsor has called me to see if I relax. Cock sucking like, motherfucker. Like, my sponsor. You haven't even called and said, "Hey Tim, are you doing good?" You I should, haven't seen you. You should invite him into the octagon. I think. See you know what he I mean? can see what he can do in the squared circle. But the one guy that does call me, he'll call me three days a week. All right. And say good morning. I hope you have a great day. Yeah. It was his first day at our home group. When I was celebrating my one year and he got to hear my complete story and he said it changed his life. You go back. You go back and you give back because you have so much to give. And fuck him. You know, I, I only hear from one guy in my home group, Ray the Clamor, and he texts 50 people a day and I'm just Does one he? of the 50. But like, you go. Yeah. And, and you know what? He has to go to meetings. You don't have to go, but your message is so powerful. Your life was saved. It's an opportunity to constantly keep that shit moving. Right. And, and you know, keep this oil fucking turnover. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we never know who's coming in and sitting in the seat. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. Just one day. You got your, you got your, because Tim is a fucking fanatical dieter, exerciser, father, storyteller. Work it in. That's my, I mean, if you're not looking for advice now, here. I, I will promise you, I will hit, I will hit Sunday night. That's my favorite one. It's always a new outside speaker coming in. They keep it real and keep it clean and, and fresh. I will go Sunday. I will text you from the meeting text and let me. you know that I'm there. And how do I fucking get in shape, Tim? I have this Dude. bullshit sort of desire to get in shape. It's bullshit, but at the same time, it's real. What do I, he had six cookies a month. I eat six cookies a night. I got problems, Tim. What the fuck do we do? Look, man, I don't care who you are. You know who Jeremy Jackson is? Yeah. Jeremy, I, I tried to do the dopey fitness challenge with Jeremy Jackson. Yeah. He came on, he started talking about breath work. All he asked us to do is to drink 32 ounces of water a day. What do we do after that? That's a good start. What do we do, Tim? No, man. Look at me. It, it's basic. It's, okay. it's so simple. It's like getting sober. It's so simple, but so difficult at the same time. All right, time. break it down real quick. Okay. Yeah. I don't want you to get a ticket, but, but break it down. What I did is however much body weight you weigh. Yes. Say 150, 200 pounds, whatever. You eat that many grams of protein. Oh, boy. Per day. Okay. And the same amount as carbs. So you eat, so let's say I weigh 200 pounds. You eat, you eat 200 grams of protein. And 200 grams of carbs? Every day. And that's enough? That's enough every day. Now your calorie intake 
Like say, uh, okay, so a chicken breast is 40 to 50 grams of protein and it's only 300 calories. Okay, so you're doing like four four chicken breasts or something? You can't eat four chicken breasts. What do you do? Now it gets so boring. What do you do? I, I eat 10 eggs in the morning. 10 eggs? Yeah, I eat 10 eggs in the oh, morning. What about the cholesterol, Tim? I only have two yolks. So eight whites and two yolks. Yeah, that's about 700 calories, but that's 50 grams of protein. Two hours later, I'll have a shake. What kind of shake? A protein shake. Is it good? It's really good. What kind of protein Some of them shake? taste like shit. It tastes like chalk, but... I eat uh, Five Star Fitness protein, whey protein. It's, it's strawberry or chocolate. It tastes really good. So you're in. I'm in. This is it. This, yeah. This is, this it's is my gonna, life It's now. a stretch. I'm going to text you when I start. You text it's, me at the meeting. I'll text you when I fucking eat. It's 80% eat diet, man. 80% Anybody diet. can go and walk on a treadmill. Anybody can go lift weights. Anybody can stretch and, and do yoga and all that but stuff. But you're nowhere without the diet. Nowhere without the diet. There's no sense of going to the gym and busting your ass for two hours if you're going to leave there and go eat McDonald's. I'm not going anyway. <laughs> I'm not going to the gym. I'm not going yeah. to McDonald's, but I am eating too many. I want to, okay, I'm with you. Change your diet. It's the, it's start a, it's there. A, it's start, it, dude, it's, it's the diet 100%. Leave the sodas. I don't drink my calories. I drink water. What um, about Diet Coke? No. I'm like addicted to Diet Coke. I drink Coke. Diet Sprite. I'm like an old Jewish woman. I like Diet Sprite. Diet Sprite. Diet Coke you tastes can, flat to me. You're drinking Diet Sprite? That's part of the regime? I drink Diet Sprite for dinner only. For dinner, That's with it. dinner, with as dinner. a treat. That's it. A little as bit a of sweet. All day long, it's 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 water. Water and then diet Sprite at dinner. One glass of diet Sprite with my dinner. Because I drank water all day and I'm sick of water at that point. So that's your reward. That's my reward. All right, Tim. I think this is fantastic. Did you yeah. have a good time? I did, man. I had an awesome time. Right, awesome. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. So that was Tim Lodgen. And uh, just such an inspiring story. So much good stuff in there. It's crazy. The, uh, the, the incredible synchronicity of the Tim Lodgen story from the, the nunchucks on LSD to the fucking 30 mini bottles of fireball whiskey and the crazy Brandon Novak connection. I'm so glad Tim came up and he, he put his money where his mouth was. He wanted to come on the show and he drove up and he fucking killed it. So thank you, Tim Lodgen. Uh, follow him on Instagram at Tim Lodgen. And, if, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about Tim Lodgen. So write in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you thought. I, I'd love to hear your opinions because we are a family. We are a pack. And I recently watched the Jungle Book live action movie with my daughter, Susan. And I have to say, like, this is one of my favorite movies ever. If you have a kid and you want to have something to watch with them, watch the Jungle Book live animation movie. And maybe, I mean, there's so many good parts in the movie, but the the deep part for Dopey Nation and for recovery and for 12-step people, it's like, it's all about this boy. If you don't know about the Jungle Book, it's an old book. Uh, I think his name is Kipling. You know, uh, what's his name? Rudgard Kipling, I think his name is the guy who wrote the book. And it's about this boy that gets found in the jungle by a black panther but raised by a wolf pack and the wolf pack had a poem and this is the poem and a piece of the poem and I think it really fits dopey nation and and people in recovery and maybe it doesn't maybe I'm maybe maybe I'm stretching here but here we go now this is the law of the jungle as old and as true as the sky and the wolf that shall keep it may prosper but the wolf that shall break it must die as the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, 
The law runneth forward and back, for the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. It's deep. I think I cried my eyes out when I saw them do the do the the poem in the movie. So that's one of my recommendations. Another recommendation is totally stick with The Last of Us. It's incredible. Newest episode, incredible. Check it out. That third episode of The Last of Us might be the greatest TV show I've ever seen. And the sixth episode, killer. They're really doing a very fine job. All about like uh, an apocalypse, a mushroom-driven zombie apocalypse that reminds me of addiction. But really, in reality, everything seems to remind me of addiction. Now, before we go, I want to give a huge shout-out to Mr. Matt Shoemaker on his one year. So super big congratulations to Matt. If you have clean time and you want to be congratulated or celebrated or whatever to be part of the pack, the Dopey Nation pack, because the strength of the pack is the dope and the strength of the dope is the pack. Maybe it's the strength of the nation is the dope. and the, No, the strength of the dope is the nation and the strength of the nation is the dope. And I'm sure there's, yeah, there's got to be something very wrong there. But that is where we will end another explicit episode of the Dopey Podcast, our 401st explicit episode in a row. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Thank you, Tim Lodgen. And fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had and my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to
all I ever had, that's all I ever had, and that's all I ever had.